I'm an ex-alcoholic, drug addict, criminal, hustler, womanizer, fighter, liar, manipulator, player, drug dealer, thief, abuser, hypocrite, and a worldly confused individual. My name is Ben Lively. I'm not who I was before. I'm a born-again child of the Most High God, anointed, chosen, set apart, and called to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. I teach Christians the truth of God's word. I'm a mouthpiece for the Lord Jesus Christ. I will not compromise, play any games, or waste time with this mission from on high. I know that in and of myself, I am nothing. I need God for every breath I take and every move I make. I have Christ living in me and I'm burning with the fire of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I'm different now and forevermore. This earth is not my home. I know that and I declare it boldly. I'm strong in prayer, praying in power and in the Spirit. I will preach, teach, deliver, evangelize, prophesy, baptize, and build up groups of believers as God allows. He is working through me as I'm surrendered to His service as an instrument of righteousness. And if you know me or get to know me, you'll realize that I take no credit for this, but God gets all the glory. In Christ I live, and to heaven I will rise. Thank you so much for tuning in, and welcome, everyone. Hope you're well. I'm your host, Ben Lively, and you're listening to Shaken Awake, episode number nine. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in wherever you are and whatever you're doing right at this very moment. And listen, if you could find uh, any value in today's episode, please pass the news. Pass the podcast name and link to a friend, a family member, or colleague that you feel would benefit from the show and become blessed as you are through the words that the Lord shares through these messages. It's probably be uh, one of the easiest things you can do to spread the word. Just pass the resource on and let God do the rest, right? That's what I do just about every minute of every day. And just to note, if you if you haven't yet checked the show out at www.shaken-awake.com, please do. I've just added more information and transcripts of the show for those that prefer to read or review snippets of the show without having to listen to the entire podcast again. Or... Uh, if you want to share out some of the messages stated on the show to friends, family, or colleagues, go for it. It's uh, better viewed on a desktop, laptop, or tablet, but available on all devices. And also, recently added with Shaken Awake's podcast presence and page on LinkedIn, Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Twitter, with I'm sure more to follow. Great avenues and channels to spread the messages even further. So check them out if you get the chance, would you? And just a fun fact, the ninth podcast episode is the average number where a podcast show typically goes away, meaning the podcast host stalls out or more or less quits. I know it's hard to believe, right? But it's the current average or it was a year or two ago tops. And I always was amazed by that fact. And long before God called me to do this show... Um, however, the devil's place set in my ear from the moment I began planning for the show, attempting to sow that seed in my mind. So I'm here to tell you guys, this episode nine is only the beginning, just the start and not the end. 
I'm letting Satan's attempts to dissuade me fuel my trust in Jesus even more. So here's to another thousand episodes. I'm claiming it right now in God's name. And as always, I promise you another great show. But more than anything, my hope for you today and always is that you have an actual encounter with the Lord. He's always right there with you, even when you think he's not. So let's get ready to invite him in with us right here, right now, and allow him to speak directly to your heart and minds. So let's get right into the heart of today's topic, shall we? Today, we're going to be diving into a very important topic, taking our eye off the prize and living each day as though we've got a million more. The point of today's episode that I really want to hit home for all of you is the one that God revealed to me and hit home with me like a ton of bricks being dropped on my head. I've said before, among many things, God's given me revelation and wisdom that feels like it's been downloaded into my heart and brain quicker than I can understand it or retain it. Yet I do, and both. Not only that, he's given me it for two reasons. One, to completely change my life, and two, to not keep it inside or to myself, but to proclaim it to you all. Some of these revelations and wisdom he's given me, I've later found out in writing through his word as confirmation, or I guess double confirmation of the revelation and wisdom. Some I have not, but feel it and know it's the work of the Holy Spirit working within me. With that said, the topic for today's show is not a cliched statement, but has more of a a meaning that we, at least I, never really paid attention to until it was dropped on me in a spiritual way by God and the Holy Spirit. I'd like to share the awe and amazement and meaning behind this phrase, and I pray this has a lasting effect on your hearts, your minds, and your lives moving forward from this day forward. Two focal points that we're going to define and combine to realize and receive the total message for today's show is the relativity between taking our eye off the prize, quote unquote, and living each day as though we're immortal and keeping our eye on the prize and living each day as though it's our last. So here we go. What's the meaning of taking our eye off the prize? To me, it means to have an end goal, but allowing outside and or inside influences or noise, as I like to call it, capture our attention and begin to pull us away from, and then ultimately, mostly or completely off that end goal. So then the opposite could be agreed on as keeping our eye on the prize, correct? The online definition of keeping your eye on the prize is to remain steadfastly focused on one's goal. So I asked a few listeners of the show what their thought or definition was of keeping their eye on the prize. One said, you're going to need determination and endurance for said prize. In order for me to get that prize, I'm going to need the ingredients to complete the recipe to get that prize. And I thought I thought that was a great metaphor. And additionally, they added to keep your eye on the prize means to stay on the straight line and not deviate. Another listener explained, I see a goal that I want in my life. I stay focused on that goal. I don't stop until I reach it. Not much else is more important than that goal. And I never give up until it's mine. So I believe that we could all agree that each of these personal definitions may be close to 
or exactly how you yourself would define the phrase. As always, let's hear what the Bible says on this very subject. So keeping your eye on the prize. Philippians 3.14 in King James Version, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9.24 from the NIV, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. In 2 Corinthians 4.18 in the NIV Version, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So for all that he had learned of Christ and all that he had accomplished for him since his conversion, the apostle Paul did not believe he'd reached the point where he could relax and quote unquote coast in his Christian life. So let's listen to what the apostle Paul says in Philippians 3 verses 12 to 14. I have not yet received all of those things. I have not yet been made perfect, but I move on to take hold of what Christ Jesus took hold of me for. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider that I have taken hold of it yet, but here's the one thing I do. I forget what is behind me. I push hard toward what is ahead of me. I move on toward the goal to win the prize. God has appointed me to win it. The heavenly prize is Christ Jesus himself. Let me ask each and every one of you today, what is your prize? There is a prize you're aiming for. What is it? What's your prize? Some don't have a prize. They spend or waste their lives, quote unquote, living for each day. Similarly to eating versus dieting, some say they live to eat while others eat to live. Two different directions and mindsets with similar actions, right? So with that said, some don't have a prize. They just make it through each day, make it through each week, month, year, etc. And just make the most out of it. They have nothing they've set their sights on. They aim at nothing and hit the bullseye every day. And that's okay with them. Go to work, pay your bills, have fun with what's left over, if anything. Sleep, rinse, repeat. Right? Others have very definitive prizes. Retire by age 60. Have the most fun I can before my time is up. Make the most money while I'm able to work. Travel to the most places, enjoy all life has to offer. Have the most fun while I'm young and agile enough to. Be the best person I can to be to other people. Build the best things in life. Businesses, investments, network of friends, net worth, etc. Here were my prizes. In order from teen to my early 40s. Have the most fun. Get the most high. Get buzzed or drunk every moment I could. Get the most out of everyone and everything to my advantage. Make money to support going out six to seven times per week to get drunk and party. Get work done quickly so I could, quote unquote, enjoy life and freedom. Make the most money. Climb the corporate ladder. Build businesses to make tons of money or retire early. And just be good enough so I wasn't a bad person anymore. These were my life prizes worth fighting for day after day. How deplorable, how demeaning, how worldly was I living? Where was God in all of this? 
Why wasn't he my prize worth living and fighting for? Why was he not even on my mind 364 days out of the year, if that? Why was he not important to me? Let's pause here for a moment and turn the table over. Let's talk about living forever. Or should I say we're not? There's only one guarantee in life when we're we're born, and that is that we will die one day. No one in history has escaped death. No one in history has even been able to been able to uh, purchase or barter for one more minute to add to their life. I can't remember the year, but uh, perhaps it was three or four years or so ago, I thought about why don't we consciously think about dying? I mean, I'm glad we don't. It would be horrible to wake up every day thinking, is today the last day I'm going to live? Nevertheless, why do we? And I was thinking mostly about myself then. Why do we not consciously ever think about dying why did i never have a feeling of death being imminent until i reached a later stage of my life such as in very old age the best i could come up with as an answer with was it was the equivalency of not fearing a car accident or an auto death every time we step in our cars yet we know it happens every few seconds in the world we don't think about it we just hop on in and go right I pretty much stopped there. Now I felt a need to know because it had significance not to our life, but in how we actually live it and perceive it. It also then has a direct impact on how we do or don't keep our eyes on the prize, correct? I knew there had to be something scientific, but also spiritual at work to allow our minds to function like this. So upon my research, I stumbled across a great article on www.calculistech.com. And I've placed a link in the notes section and online on my website to this article entitled, Looking Death in the Eye, Why Your Brain is Convinced You'll Live Forever. So at age 17, Yair Dor Zeiderman encountered death. It was not what he expected. Years later, he is uh, researching the complex mechanisms that make us certain that mortality is something that happens to other people. So when he was 17, Yair experienced the trauma of death in a particularly jarring way. In 94, his childhood friend Eric, then a private in the Israeli military, was abducted and killed by Hamas, which is a uh, a foreign terror, uh, terrorist regime. So all Zair remembers now is feeling numb, he said in a recent interview with Calculist. As everyone else around him collapsed, he started questioning himself. Why wasn't he crying like everyone? During the funeral, he forced himself basically to shed tears. It was disassociative situation like being in a dream, he recalled. It was clear to me then and it's even clearer to me now that something was wrong. It's even more clear today because Dor Zitterman, now a graduate student at Bar Ilan University, spent the last few years studying the way people deal with death. And on Friday, a new research paper he co-authored will be published in the scientific journal NeuroImage, discussing a study he and his fellow researchers conducted that revealed the mechanism the human brain employs to shield people from accepting their own mortality. The key concept is mortality salience. 
The moment awareness of death occurs and the brain's defense mechanism springs into action, he explained. The study shows that the brain has an unconscious but very basic belief that death is something that happens to others, not to me, he said. And that belief is activated when we come into contact with something that could remind us of death. We repress its relation to us and project it onto others, and that protects us. The study made me understand not just how the brain constantly interprets reality to construct a story, but how fundamental the mortality denial mechanism is to our consciousness and brain. So, Dor Zitterman puts into words something we already uh, instinctively know. Were we aware of death at any given moment, life would have been immeasurably harder. Animals, at least as far as science is aware, are are not cognizant of their eventual death. Humans are, but evolution, or what I call Satan, has produced repression mechanisms that enable us to operate despite that knowledge. They're constantly working. For example, when one passes by a cemetery or glances over an obituary while reading the morning paper. Death is recognized and immediately rejected via systematic emotional detachment that turns death into something that happens to others. As far as we're concerned, we'll live forever. That was the focus of Dor Zitterman's study, conducted jointly with Adrian Lutz under the guidance of Avi of Bartolon's Multidisciplinary Brain Research Center. It was performed using a neuroimaging technique for mapping brain activity via magnetic fields. So dozens of these volunteers were instructed to look at a screen onto which the image of a stranger was imposed along with random words, half of which had a connection to death. Then... A photo of the volunteers themselves was unexpectedly shown, along with uh, a death-related word like grave or funeral. And the researchers tracked all brain activity using 248 sensors and discovered that the images of strangers, no matter the word shown, created one type of activity, while the individual's image, only in connection to a death-related word, created another unusual type of activity. So in her lab settings, they managed to duplicate the feeling of death fear that feeling the brain suppresses mostly successfully in real life making the participants confront their own mortality and recording that very brief moment of brain activity before the brain's denial mechanism comes into play. So to isolate the brain's reaction to death from its reaction to other negative concepts, the researchers also performed a control test where they exchanged the death-related words for other ones intended to create negative emotional responses, but those didn't cause the same activity in the brain. So by recording the brain's beta wave activity at the moment of death, deathly fear, the researchers essentially proved the existence of a mechanism that neutralizes that fear the rest of the time. So what actually is deathly fear? According to Dor Zitterman, it's a failed update of a prediction. What that means is that the brain does not have an unbiased connection to the world, but rather conceptualizes its surroundings based on statistical beliefs that rely on already existing definitions of information. The eye receives light rays that bounce off a certain object, and the brain knows how to extract the right coding from memory and says, that's an apple, he explained. The brain actually monitors its internal and external environment 
to keep up to date and updates its predictions accordingly. Are there any signs of predators? Are there potential sources of pleasure? Is it cold? Is there a shortage of food? That constant activity surrounds a virtual gravity source we experience as self. So the key finding of the study was the brain refuses to connect death with the self or predict that the self is finite, Thor Zitterman said. The self knows his fellow men will die, but not him, he said. And therefore, it will always categorize death-related information as something that relates only to others. So deathly fear is therefore the moment when our definition of death is something that only happens to other people is disrupted. The prediction wasn't updated and the brain could not soften the blow like it usually does. So I'm going to stop here. While this is fascinating, and you can read more about it, including the scientific data that uh, accompanies our findings, but for time's sake, let's focus in on the importance of this fact from a biblical stance. If I had to sum up my beliefs that are in addition to this and an abundance of scientific proof on the subject, I'd suggest that a bit of spiritual warfare comes into play here. Maybe I'm wrong, but if Satan deceives by convincing many he... And hell doesn't exist, and for those that do believe he and hell does exist, that they have all the time to get themselves right with God, we just went over this last week, then this would be a perfect way to help his mission, no? For many do get saved when on their deathbed, and death is imminent, and they turn to God with seconds or minutes left to live, just like the thief on the cross, no? Absolutely. Therefore, the less frequently that happens, the better off Satan and his chances of winning his prize becomes, which, by the way, is your soul. Think about it. Whether I'm right in that thinking or not, it's still a fact and it still occurs every day. But wait, I can't stop there. For what is most important is what God's word states, not what I believe or what we believe or think or what science states is real or not, correct? So today I did some research in God's word, and this is what he and his word says about this very subject, all from the English standard version of the Bible. In James 4.14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James 4.13-17, come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. Psalms 144, verse 4. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Proverbs 27, 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Psalms 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 1 Peter 1, verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. Second Samuel fourteen fourteen. We must all die. We're like water 
spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Psalms 102, verse 3, For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. Psalms 39, 4 says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Psalms 102.11, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Psalms 39.5, behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Isaiah 40, verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Psalm 78, 39, he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. And lastly, uh, Psalms 89, 47, remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created all the children of man. Children of man means children of the devil. That's those who are unbelievers or in a current state of backslidings without repentance. So what is the work of the devil and Satan? As I had suggested a few moments ago, this, ver- this verse confirms that belief and makes it a fact, a reality. So as you can clearly see from the word of God, Dor Zimmerman's study is not a misnomer. In fact, it's simply scientific fact about, what, about what's truly at work to prove what the Bible says is real from the standpoint of science. Therefore, we can conclude that in both the spiritual realm and the natural realm, we are fooled into thinking we have the time remaining that we don't actually have. Well, now we know. So what do we do with this wisdom or reality? Well, let's circle back around and combine the two forces at play in motion that can be either for us or against us. And it's God's message to us today. What is the prize you're keeping your eye on? Is it Jesus or is it you? What holds the greatest value in your life? What is the ultimate prize in the way you've ran the race that's been set before you? Just as you wouldn't, you know, train for a bicycle tournament by practicing rowing a boat, why would you place any other prize above the Lord your God? I'm not implying that you are. But I'm stating what I had been doing my entire life. All my prizes did not include him whatsoever. In fact, they ignored and denied his very existence. What do we, you, I, need to do in order to be rewarded with the words from his mouth saying, well done, my good and faithful servant? Is it placing value in the things of this world and working towards them? Certainly not. In fact, he says in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What we view as most important, or in other words, replace him with for our prize, is considered adultery. Let's see how the Bible describes exactly this point in James 4.4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Breaking down the key parts of James 4.4. So number one, you adulterous people. Those who love the world do so in a way that precludes love and fidelity to God. We cannot have two masters, such as Matthew 6.24 states, and we cannot have two husbands. Number two, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Friendship with the world means that one loves the ways of the fallen world, the dominion of darkness and of Satan. It speaks more to this in Colossians 1.13. It's not possible to love what is anti-God and also love God. It's not logical and so it's impossible. And number three, therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, care must be taken on this point. Jesus Christ came into the world as a friend to seek and save what was lost. It's a great kindness to offer up himself because he so loved the world, just as it states in John 3, 16. The kindness, the kindest and most loving thing is to oppose the world with urgency, calling men and women to repent and turn and be saved. But to choose to be a friend of the world is to approve of and participate in the sin of the world. Nowhere does God call his set-apart people to become like the world. Rather, we're to be different from the world. So what this meant to me in my life was to replace the prize I had my eyes on with God and God alone. The prize changed, and therefore my race and everything in the race changed. This was a gift from God called grace that allowed me to make this change. Removing the scales on my eyes, the cement in my ears, and the rock formed around my heart allowed me to take my eyes and life on my prize and replace it with a prize that I will always and continue on forever having my eye on. Nothing, nothing will separate me from running the race set before me for the prize is too great. The prize is Jesus Christ. Lastly, knowing now by the handiwork of God at work in my life and leading me to the meaning behind what science and what I firmly believe and what I'm led to believe is the handiwork of Satan in deceiving me to believe I have forever to live, it allows me to pause and counter this deception, this lie, this false sense of time is on my side. No, it's not. It's against it. This ability I have prayed for, and I strongly recommend if you haven't, you do this also. Pray to God to allow you and bless you with the wisdom, knowledge, and power to spiritually comprehend what each minute of your life is truly worth. Not for this world, but for the next. Since this world is not your home, you see, we're simply in the dressing room of eternity. We need to comprehend what time we do have we owe and give to him and him alone. To much is given, much is required. The mere fact you do not know the month, day, hour, or minute of your death should take your urgency or your sense of urgency from a one to a 10, not in fear, but in serving God. What will you and I tell him the day we're face to face with him as to why we chose this over that? This over that, over him, if in fact that's what we do. What will be our reasons? What are going to be our arguments? What will be our punishment? What will be our reward? That, my friends, 
is up to you. Right now and every waking moment you have for the remainder of your lifetime. Do not allow the enemy to allow you to believe you have all the time to quote unquote get right with God. What if tomorrow is your day to go? What if this evening is your time to go? What are you doing right now to prepare for that? What are you doing right now to keep your eye on the prize and realize you don't have eternity to successfully run the race that's been set before you? One day it'll be too late for many. Your eternity will be determined where your heart was on earth. Did it love the Lord God all the while or was it fixated on the worldly things and worldly pleasures and pursuits? It will truly be too late then to repent and change. Here's a fact. There's no better time. In fact, there may not be a time remaining except right now to get right with the Lord and understand that He is your prize. And you have a certain number of heartbeats remaining to run the race and win that prize. The rest is up to you and that clock starts right now. I'll end with this portion of a prayer I literally read this morning before I was preparing for the show on this very subject. Coincidence? There is no such thing. It's taken from the devotional book, The Valley of Vision, and it's a Puritan's prayer entitled, To Be Fit for God. It's on page 255. And it says, May I duly regard the doctrine and the practice of the gospel, prizing its commands as well as its promises. Sanctify me in every relation, office, transaction, and condition of life, that if I prosper, I may not be unduly exalted. If I suffer, I may not be overly sorrowful. Balance my mind in all varying circumstances and help me to cultivate a disposition that renders every duty a spiritual privilege. Thus, may I be content, be a glory to thee, and examples to others. Amen. My final statement is this. A wise person would not invest everything in something temporary. A wise person invests something that will last. Invest your life wisely. You don't have forever. So before we end today's show, I just wanted to thank you all again for tuning in. I hope you were touched by God through today's message in scripture. I'd like to ask you a favor only if you received any value out of today's show. Would you tell at least one person you know, call them, text them, email them, talk to them, tell them to give this show a listen. It may just help them in their walk with Christ. Also, I really need your support. If you could do me a huge favor. Would you go right now to whichever podcast app you're listening through today and just give me a quick star rating? And if you want to go the extra mile for Christ, put a quick review in. It takes 15, 20 seconds. I'd love that help and support from you guys. And that would allow the Lord and the Holy Spirit to reach even more lives through this broadcast. If you would like to get a hold of me, you can write me a note on www.shaken-awake.com forward slash contact. You can also email me directly at ben at shaken-awake.com or even call or text me directly for any reason. My cell phone is 407-493-3208. Again, my number is 407 493 3208. I'd love your feedback, questions, ideas, requests, your criticisms, corrections. I want it all. 
So if you'd like to be a guest of the show, please reach out to me as well. If you have a life or eternity changing story you'd like to share, please let me know and I will schedule you in. Um, We just simply put, don't hear enough of the truth these days or the positive ways of God and Jesus Christ these days. This podcast with your help is going to help change that up. So I'd love your help with this where you can. Next week, tune in next Sunday evening or whenever you're able as we dive into another important topic. Why do really good people go to hell and really bad people go to heaven? Next week's episode is another powerful and do not miss episode. So until next week, take great care of yourself and each other and God bless you all. 